Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, my guest is Dave Montgomery, an author and geomorphologist at the University of Washington who has become a thought leader on soil health and regenerative farming. Through his travel and research, Dave has discovered how he can blend ancient and modern agricultural techniques to sequester carbon in the soil while also feeding the world. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Thanks. Pleasure to talk to you. Let's start at the very beginning. What is the difference between dirt and soil? Soil is the interface between biology and geology. So it's got the mineral part and the stuff that we could call dirt if we really wanted to. Soil has structure, it has mineral particles, but it also has life and, and the remains of life. So when you take the once living sort of things that we call organic matter, and you take things like worms and bacteria and fungi, and you mix it all up with a mineral substrate, that's what soil. So dirt is soil where you don't want it. And the big difference really is life. And speaking of dirt, you wrote a book called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. And in that book, you explored how soil degradation has been a major cause of social collapse throughout history. Yet your latest book, Growing a Revolution, investigates how modern society can avoid making the same mistakes while feeding several billion more people and cooling the planet. Why the optimism? Boy, you know, it took me a while to get to the optimism, but I like to think of Growing a Revolution as the optimistic sequel to dirt. You know, if you look back through the history of civilizations, there's a long track record of destroying the land that has compromised the longevity of society after society. And when that book came out, I started to get invitations to go speak at farming conferences about the, you know, the problems of soil degradation and soil erosion. And I started to meet farmers who had turned around the problem on their farm that I was writing about back through history. And at the same time, my wife was restoring the soil in our urban lot in Seattle, where we live. And I started to realize that, wow, we actually could rebuild the fertility of the land because farmers were doing at you know, full scale what Anne had done right under my nose in our yard. And so I started interviewing them, started visiting them. And it turns out there's some general principles behind which we can, uh, shall we say, reform farming and actually turn it into a regenerative uh, practice that builds soil fertility while increasing yields, increasing farmer profits, reducing the environmental footprint of farming. So I really sort of came to a very optimistic place in the end, uh, realizing that we don't face a choice between you know, intensively farming and degrading land and starving now versus starving later. We can actually turn the problem around. You know, whether we will actually do so, that's you know, another argument for optimists versus pessimists. But I, I've come down into the optimistic camp of thinking that we could do it if we put our minds and our policies and our efforts towards it. The plow has been a central symbol of agriculture and civilization itself throughout history. But you say the plow is actually one of the most destructive inventions of all time. Why is that? Yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? You, you think of the plow as sort of a, the, a big icon of agriculture. Uh, it's what farmers do, right? When I started writing the dirt book, I was thinking that it would be you know, a great excuse to go visit ruins around the world and, and delve into archaeology and think about how the way people treated soils, how that had played out in the past. And what I ended up writing was a history of farming. Because when you actually get to understanding what caused soil degradation in the past, a big piece of it was tillage, was plowing. 
And so, you know, how does that work? You think what a plow does, it, it inverts the soil, it breaks up the soil structure, it breaks up the soil surface. It's really good for weed control, right? Because you just like plow them under. And so one of the reasons it's been so popular with farmers throughout history is it's really good for weed control. And it also gives you a little burst of fertility because it stimulates the bacteria to break down organic matter and that releases nutrients that can help feed a growing crop. But if you do that for too long, it degrades the land, it degrades the organic matter, and it causes erosion. Because, I mean, how many natural landscapes have you gone out to where there's a lot of, like, bare soil? You know, nature tends to clothe herself in plants, and they hold the soil together, they hold it in place, they build its fertility through their dead bodies and through organic matter. And the plow undoes all that, but it does it at a slow enough pace that it's hard to recognize each year. But if you look like a geologist, like I am, back through history, you can see the patterns playing out over many generations in ways that degrade the ability of the land to feed future generations. And no-till farming is one of three agricultural practices that you've identified that can leave the soil healthier and more productive. What are the other two, and what barriers do farmers face in adopting these practices to regenerate the soil? You know, what I found in researching Growing a Revolution and, and what Anne and I found in writing The Hidden Half of Nature, the book about uh, how she restored our garden and, and the soil in our garden, was that the principles that lead to rebuilding fertility fast are the things that cultivate the beneficial life in the soil. We tend to think of things like bacteria and fungi uh, through their pathogenic brethren, the ones that cause us trouble or to cause our crops trouble. But there's an awful lot of beneficial microbes in the world that actually help support the health and fertility of the land and that help our own uh, health when they're in our bodies, you know, what's referred to as our microbiome. And so the three practices in farming that actually cultivate the beneficial life in the soil is no-till farming. So stop disturbing them. Don't plow up all the worms. Don't plow up the mycorrhizal fungi. It's growing cover crops, keeping living plants growing in the soil at all times, which uh, plants will capture solar energy to build their bodies, obviously, but they also exude some of the compounds they make through photosynthesis out the roots, and that feeds microbes in the soil that in turn do things that help those plants. And the third principle is to grow a diversity of crops. So you can boil that down to ditch the plow, cover up, and grow diversity. That's the recipe for building healthy, fertile soils on working farms, and it's a really different way of looking at the soil as the foundation for farming. Um, and so some of the barriers to adopting that are, first of all, there's, the, there's the, the knowledge barrier. If you've been trained to think in terms of the way modern conventional agriculture thinks, it's the exact opposite of those three points. It's to use intensive tillage, it's to rely on intensive agrochemical use instead of organic matter and cover crops for nourishing crops, and it's to specialize in one or two crops or functional monocultures. So there's sort of a, a mental barrier, if you will, in terms of how we think about the soil in the, in the process of agricultural production. But then there's also our agricultural subsidies. We basically subsidize you know, commodity monocultures, which aren't very diverse. And there's economic barriers to moving into no-till farming. Say, if you don't have a no-till planter, well, you need a new piece of equipment. There's a capital outlay there. So there's sort of those barriers across the board, but what turned me into a bit of an optimist on this issue is that the farmers that I met who had successfully navigated the transition and figured out how to apply those principles on their farms, on their land, were more profitable than their neighbors. They were spending less on fertilizer. They were spending less on diesel because they weren't plowing as much. That made them more profitable because when they restored fertility to their soil, their yields came back up to match or exceed their conventional neighbors. If they're harvesting more but spending less to do so, 
that's a recipe for their neighbors sort of catching on and going, hey, what, what's that crazy guy next door who's doing these things that I wasn't really trained to do? How come, you know, he's got the new barn, he's got the new car. There's barriers, but these principles work in practice if people figure out how to actually apply them to their context. And is it only small farms that can make this transition? No, you know, some of the farms I visited in Growing a Revolution were up to 20,000 acres. Uh, there, were, there were large farms that, you know, specialized in growing crops for commodity markets, but that they grew a diversity of crops. So they would grow, you know, like wheat, corn, soybeans, barley, and other crops all in rotations that were more complex than a tr- traditional wheat fallow or a corn soy rotation. Some of these farms were actually quite large. And I visited small subsistence farms in the developing world and large, highly technologically sophisticated mechanized farms across North America. And those general principles of you know, ditch the plow, cover up, grow diversity seem to work pretty well across the board. But of course, you have to tailor them to the kind of equipment you have, the kind of crops you're actually growing, the markets you sell into, and even the social context in which different farmers find themselves in different parts of the world. Don't we risk food shortages and even mass starvation if we stop using chemical fertilizers? No, that's actually one of the big misnomers, I think, of of the 21st century. Now, if we just stopped using them and kept growing the same crop varieties on the same degraded soil, then yes, absolutely, because chemical fertilizers are helping to prop up crop yields on very degraded land. But if we had a program of transitioning farms to more regenerative practices that could rebuild their fertility, we could greatly cut down on fertilizer use and, and pesticide use while not harming yields. Usually you hear the sort of the differences between organic and conventional farming with, you know, a 10% uh, yield penalty or so. And that's where that sort of perception generally comes from. But I spent a lot of time trying to parse studies that have looked at those kind of yield metrics. And the studies that have looked at farms that do those three principles, going to no-till, growing with covered crops, and growing a diversity of crops, are able to actually harvest more, uh, well, at least as much, if not more, than conventional farms, but using far less agrochemicals. So I'm not advocating that we completely eliminate all mineral or chemical fertilizer use, but I think there are ways to so reduce it that I started teasing some of the farmers I visited who are embracing those principles and putting them to good use, that they were organic-ish farmers, and that they were, <laughs> they were not really organic, but that they were using so little in the way of agrochemicals that they could virtually get certification and their yields were actually better than their conventional neighbors. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that issue. And if you basically just look at how you would produce the most food for people per acre, not the most, say, corn or the most soybeans per acre, that you know, whatever single crop you want to pick, the most productive farms for producing food for people are the small-scale diversified farms because they're basically able to actually harvest more off of an acre of land. But of course, that inv- there is a scale there. If you're going to go to very large-scale farming, you're going to want to have a modest number of crops. You're not going to be growing 20 or 30 on the same sort of small piece of land. But in terms of having at least four, five, six crops in a rotation or a real diversity of cover crops, that can be done at scale and it can be done without a major yield penalty if the practices rebuild the fertility of the soil. So the key caveat there is we need to invest in rebuilding the fertility of our land in adopting and researching regenerative practices. It would give us a way to actually feed the world in the future with a much smaller environmental footprint and in a way that could actually put a lot of carbon in the ground because the things you would do to build soil fertility to keep yields up 
in restoring soil are the same things you would do to essentially use plants on farms to take carbon out of the atmosphere, draw down carbon dioxide, and park it in soil organic matter, put it to use there, cycling through the soil and our crops and our bodies. It takes centuries for nature to build an inch of topsoil. If a committed American farmer is starting with dirt and uses regenerative methods, how fast can they transform it into soil? Boy, you know, it's going to depend on the region you're in. If you're if you're in a really arid region where you're moisture limited, it's going to go slower than if you're in a region where, like the Pacific Northwest where I live, where you know rain is not our limiting resource here. The short answer is there's no single answer that applies everywhere. I've seen farms that have increased their soil organic matter content anywhere from 0.2% a year up to pushing a half a percent to a percent a year, which means that in, you know, in a decade or two of farming with that new style, one could restore the organic matter content back to, if not above, what native soils had in most parts of the world. So there's a real challenge in figuring out what the right techniques are in different areas, but the general principles seem to work pretty well. And there's lots of arguments about, you know, if you, if you did regenerative farming on farms all over the world, how much carbon could you pull from the atmosphere? You know, and it, first of all, it's a big stretch to think we could get every farmer in the world to do this on a dime. I think that over the next few decades, we'll see most of the farmers in the world going this direction because it makes economic sense as well as environmental sense. And even at the low end of numbers that people have, have penciled out for how much carbon we could put back in, productively put back into agricultural soils, even at the low end, it's pretty impressive numbers, anywhere from estimates from 5 to 15% at the low end of our current fossil fuel emissions, upwards to a third to a half on some of the more optimistic estimates. Reading your work, I was fascinated by the role that mycorrhizal fungi play in creating soil that is fertile and resilient, while also efficiently capturing and storing carbon. Could you talk a little bit about how this natural process differs from conventional fertilizers? You'll often hear the argument that, well, hey, there's no difference between sort of you know, organic fertilizers and chemical fertilizers. Nitrogen is nitrogen, right? And, you know, and there's some truth to that. Nitrogen is nitrogen. But it comes in different forms and it's metered out into crops at different rates. So if you look at organic matter, for example, in soils, there's some nitrogen in it, there's carbon in it, there's lots of mineral micronutrients in it. But the really big source of nitrogen fixation in soils turn out to be bacteria that have the ability to capture atmospheric nitrogen and turn it into ammonia, which can be turned into nitrates or nitrites uh, that plants can take up and that can get the nitrogen into plants they need as fertilizer. And so when you look at the biological mediation of the nitrogen supply to a crop, it's kind of like a drip filter. It's not happening all at once. What's the primary characteristic of most chemical fertilizers we had in terms of nitrogen, at least? They're designed to be soluble, right? Because you want a plant to take it up. And if it's soluble, it'll get into the water that's in the soil and then a plant can pull it up through its roots. So chemical fertilizers tend to be soluble. What that also means, though, is that when it rains, they get dissolved into the water. And if you follow the water, that's where the fertilizer goes. Only about half of the nitrogen we apply to the world's croplands at present actually makes it into a crop. And a big part of the problem is that the source of, of it, the chemical fertilizers, are soluble. So they'll run off into groundwater, into streams or rivers, uh, in, or down the Mississippi River to create that big anoxic dead zone down in the Gulf of Mexico, where all that agricultural runoff ends up in the sea. And there's dead zones around many major river mouths in the oceans around the world. When you look at what happens to organic matter, the material that is coming from recycling uh, dead plants or what's coming from biological activity, the activity of microbes living in the soil, fixing nitrogen, and then 
trading that to plants for the sugars and other exudates plants can push out of their roots to, to pay them off. That tends to get metered out at a slower pace and it is distributed more through the seasons. And in fact, a lot of it is more available at times when plants need it to take it up for their growth. Because imagine you're applying a soluble fertilizer to a field and early in the season you get a big rainfall and half your fertilizer is off the site and onto somebody else's water system to create problems and never get taken up by a crop. So there's differences in the way that works and the biological approach to fertilization is more efficient in the sense that more of the nitrogen is actually captured by a plant. So it's not running off. So you reduce pollution, but it's also more efficient in the sense that, you know, if you treat them right, microbes work for free. Your books have been influential in helping us reimagine how soil, agriculture, health, and climate are all interconnected. You and your co-author, Anne, are working on a new book that explores the link between soil health and human health. Can you tell us a little bit about the key themes that you're exploring? My co-author on that is, is Anne Beclay, my wife, who's a biologist. And so when you think about the, you know, what makes for healthy, fertile soil, I'm a geologist, she's a biologist. Soil's kind of on the interface between what we were trained in. In fact, the one class we had together in graduate school was a soil science class. So what we're working on now is what we like to think of as sort of the capstone to the books we've been working on, uh, starting with dirt and going through the hidden half of nature and growing a revolution. We are now focused on what is the effect of soil health, of the condition of the land on human health in the terms of us individually as eaters and also in terms of whole societies in terms of the broad concept of public health. And so what we're doing is we're basically looking at how the health of the soil impacts the health of crops and the provision of mineral micronutrients from the soil into those crops and the, how those crops actually produce what are known as phytochemicals, which literally just means plant-made chemicals. Turns out that many phytochemicals have demonstrated health-promoting effects in people, things like antioxidants in fruits and vegetables, for example. And farming practices, it turns out, can affect the abundance of those in our foods. And so we're tracing sort of the effects of how we treat the land into what is the quality of and qualities of the food that's produced off that land, how that tracks into livestock health from the, you know, the animals that are eating forage crops that we grow, and then also how that sort of tracks into human health. And there's a lot of dots to connect along that causal chain, but we've basically been dividing the book up into sections that look at each of those connections and running a few experiments ourselves in terms of testing the nutritional qualities of foods and trying to get beyond the simple organic versus conventional distinction that you usually see in how people look at whether foods are more or less nutritious based on how they're raised. When you start using soil health, the health and fertility of the land as the lens to look at that through, it opens up a whole different perspective. And a lot of things, as we're finding digging into that, become a lot more clear in terms of how you connect those dots. It's really hard today you know, to basically connect directly from soil health to human health because, you know, when you walk into a grocery store, you know, look at where all the food's coming from. You know, it's coming from all over the world. It's hard to trace back to any particular farm. But if you look at the causal connections arrayed along that, that linkage from the soil to plants to animals to us, there's some pretty compelling messages that emerge from it in terms of how we might want to be thinking about how we grow our food and the connection to public health through both what we eat, but also how we grow it. In Growing a Revolution, you've asked your readers to transcend many of the traditional debates like organic farming versus GMOs, conventional farmers versus environmentalists. One of the preconceptions that you challenge that I find most surprising 
is that cattle and livestock inherently damage both the climate and soil. As a carnivorous environmentalist, I find this intriguing and potentially <laughs> encouraging. What positive role can cows play as we work to regenerate the soil and fight climate change? You know, that you weren't the only person surprised by that perspective. I was surprised by that perspective. You know, I did part of my PhD research in the Northern California Coast Range, just north of San Francisco in Marin County, where if you go out hiking there, there's these big gullies that have been cut from the valley bottoms, you know, down like 30 feet to bedrock through all the stream deposits that have piled up since the last ice age. I basically was able to, in that thesis work, to nail that those gullies were carved between 1890 and the early 1900s as a result of overgrazing by dairies that uh, were a real problem. So I came into writing Growing a Revolution thinking, oh, cows are bad. They cause erosion, they cause gullies, they degrade land. Uh, and some of the farmers that I visited uh, were also ranchers. They took me to see some ranches where a different style of grazing had been used that actually had resulted in rebuilding the fertility of the land, actually rebuilt very productive native prairies and raised the carbon content of their soils by a factor of, you know, it virtually tripled it over the, a decade or two. And it started to, to re-educate me that, oh, well, may, the problem might not actually be the cows. It might actually be how we're grazing the cows. And if you think about it, if you step back a, a little, it, that actually makes a lot of geological sense in the sense that the big grassland soils of the American Midwest, what we call mollusols in soil science, were very organic matter rich. They had a lot of carbon in them. And it was grazing by the buffalo uh, and elk, but mostly the buffalo, that really helped build those mollusols over you know, many, many millennia. So what was it about their style of grazing that actually helped build the carbon content of the land that was different than what was happening in Marin County, where I had trained and studied livestock impacts on the soil and, and erosion. And the big difference is that in Marin County, the cows were kept in the valley bottom all the time because this was California. The, the moisture was in the valley bottom. The stream was there. That's, that's where the cows hung out and there weren't fences. And so that's where they were. And they basically degraded that one area of land because they were always grazing it. What did the buffalo do? They moved around a lot. They were chased around by wolves. They had a number of predators. And so they were a herd animal that would bunch up and move around. They'd intensely graze a piece of ground and then move on. And you know, not come back to the same piece of ground for about a year. And it turns out that what that does to grasses is it traumatizes the grass. And that grass puts out a whole lot of exudates, uh, things like carbohydrates, proteins, hormones, they're putting food out basically into the soil, which recruits microbial assistance, bacteria and fungi that bring the mineral elements to the plant. The plant needs to rebuild its grazed off body. And if you look at where most of the biomass in the Great Plains was, it was below ground. It was in the root zone, protected you know, where the buffalo couldn't get at it. So you had these big batteries down under the ground in terms of all this biomass and root mass that when the buffalo came and grazed it off, they could send out new solar panels to essentially capture more solar energy. And the first thing they did was put out exudates to recruit microbes to actually get them some of the other components they needed to rebuild their bodies. What that did is then those microbes in the soil, when they died, they became organic matter. So the plants were really good at building up organic matter when they were grazed the way that the buffalo were doing it. Some of the ranchers that I visited for Growing a Revolution were emulating that style of grazing and through what, something that's called intensive rotational grazing. And, you know, this style of grazing may not work well in all regions, but it worked pretty darn well at the farms that I visited and had enabled them to get back organic matter contents that were close to pushing what I can find are the records for what the native prairie was like. So a big part of the environmental problem with livestock 
is how we're actually raising it. And, you know, and, and the whole problem of what we're doing with feedlots in terms of, you know, taking cows and feeding them corn and then and confining them, that's a whole nother additional impact. But the, the style of grazing that can rebuild soil organic matter greatly reduces the, the environmental footprint of cattle. And when you look globally and ask, how are we going to feed ourselves? You know, how will we feed 10 billion people? There's parts of the world where grazing makes an awful lot of sense as a way to turn grass, something we can't eat. We can't digest cellulose, but a cow can turn that into meat and milk that we can, or, or a sheep or a goat. And so if you think strategically around the whole world, there's certain regions where if we had the right style of grazing, it could actually be a net environmental plus and a net nutritional plus for humanity. There's other places, of course, where it makes very little sense to do very intensive animal husbandry. So we need to sort of step back and think more broadly about what we're really calling a negative impact or a positive impact. And I'm not defending CAFOs or industrialized beef raising. That's a major net problem these days. But there's another way to raise livestock. I love the metaphor of the solar panels and the battery. And there are so many new ways to think about food and soil and climate that are just different from all of our preconceived notions. And I know that you're working on a new undergraduate environmental science textbook. In fact, it should publish imminently in the next couple months. What do you hope that this new generation understands about the challenges they face and what they can do to have an impact on the future? Yeah, you know, the book's, uh, I think it's called Environmental Science and Sustainability. It took us about six years to write. Uh, Dan Sherman and I were the, the authors of it. And it's really nice that it's done. <laughs> um, Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I got involved in that project because I think we really are at a turning point in how we think about our relationship to the land and to the planet that we live on. We have a long history, as I wrote about in Dirt, of degrading the environment in regions around the world in a pretty fundamental way. And we've got to get it right this time at a global scale. And getting it right, in great part, is going to fall on future generations. You know, tomorrow's farmers, tomorrow's academics, tomorrow's politicians and lawyers and advocates. And I see great promise among the students that I deal with at the University of Washington of people really wanting to get in, roll their sleeves up, and try and address and fix environmental problems. So Dan and I put a lot of work into that textbook to try and actually lay out what are the basic principles of sustainability as they're rooted in environmental science that the well-educated citizen should know, that people going into environmental science should know. Because when we start looking at how to address sort of the big environmental problems and the big social problems that face us this century, they're all interlinked through our impact on the environment, through our rising population, how we choose to feed ourselves, uh, what we choose to wear. Uh, these are all issues that are interrelated. And what I really hope that, that book helps to do is to lay out sort of logically and clearly for the next generation or two, what are the kind of choices they face? What are the kind of impacts they can have with their personal decisions, their lifestyle decisions, but also what are the broader social implications. How, we, how should we set up our food system? How should we reconceive our food system? How can we think about the way we live on the land? Uh, what does that mean for urban design? What does it mean for environmental justice about who's bearing the cost of some of our current production practices? So my real hope with that book is to help empower a new generation of students to think critically and clearly about the choices that they and their peers will face in the coming decades. Dave, thank you for helping us better understand the role of soil health in building a sustainable society and also in sequestering carbon to fight climate change. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. No worries, Ryan. Thanks for talking and uh, best of luck. Keep, on the, keep up the good work. 
Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.